You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guests this week are Sam Meggs and Jen Woodall. They're joining me uh, by speakerphone from a conference room at a book publisher in Toronto. It feels very official. I'm not so official normally. So this We're is the ones in a boardroom. Imagine how we feel. <laughs> does it have like some like grandiose view of the city? You know what? It actually does. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And their new book is Girl Squads, a collection of, I think, 20 stories of different uh, groups of women and friendships uh, throughout history, um, with Sam writing and Jen drawing, um, accompaniment illustrations to uh, some of the stories within the book. Um, maybe I'll start out with uh, kind of what was the hope for putting this book together? What kind of what was your idea you had in mind? Uh, well, I had previously written a book called Wonder Women, which focused on uh, women in STEM, like science, technology, engineering, math throughout history. And my favorite women in the books to write about were the ones who ended up collaborating with other women or friends to accomplish their goals. And I wanted to really write a book that highlighted the fact that often I think women are socialized to compete with each other instead of cooperating with each other, and that we really are stronger together than we are apart. Um, and, but it's a very historical book. Um, there's a lot of points that are difficult to reference, I think, for people like what was life like in Vietnam in the year 1000, and that's where Jen's illustrations were so um, integral to the foundation of the book because it really helps ground the book in relatability and gives people a great starting point for what they are about to read. Tell me about the process of kind of deciding on the pieces of history that you wanted to focus on and the angle you wanted to cover it from. It's very difficult to narrow it down to just 20 groups of awesome women, obviously, but my goal with creating this book was to try to cover as much diversity as I possibly could, so I wanted to try to include as many women from different countries as possible, so the book has women from Finland, Afghanistan, Korea, Iran, Japan, India, Scotland, um, you know, Canada as well, the United States all over. So um, I was trying to cover as, as many bases as I could because I find that those different cultural histories very interesting and revealing in how they sort of reflect each other as well. One of the things I was really interested by um, was it not necessarily be, like part of it's about the, the collectiveness and the friendship, but also kind of grounding this stuff in a place and time where it could be easy for you just to do like a two-pager. Here's these people, but uh, providing that background and um, what's the importance about about them within their context or about the context and how they kind of persevered through that. I'm so happy to hear you say that because those are some of my favorite parts in the book to research. You know, talking about Vietnam for the year 1000, for example, I can tell you that two Vietnamese sisters defended their country from the Chinese on elephant back in the year 1000, which is cool and impressive, but it's hard to understand why exactly that's cool and impressive unless you understand the cultural history of Vietnam, how Vietnam used to be kind of a matriarchy, and the political situation between Vietnam and China in the year 1000, which I don't know about you, but I knew nothing about. <laughs> so putting together that kind of background on each place was um, super interesting. I feel like in North America, we often focus so often on our own history that we're a little ignorant to world history. So um, it was great to be able to learn so much while putting the book together. And I hope a lot of folks learn a lot while they're reading it too. I think with that story in particular, there's uh, a lot of work to kind of parse together the story as well. Um, 
and I'm interested in that process. My background is I've got a BA in history, so history is kind of my bad. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, how do you kind of take the legend out of, um, or, you know, the the factual out of the legend and, or kind of figure out what is the kind of closest you can get? It's really challenging, and it's all about, like you say, separating out your sources. From like, I'm a big researcher. I also have a master's in, you know, Victorian literature. I love research. It's all about digging down and finding out where each of these quote unquote facts comes from, and then being really transparent with readers about the ver- the potential veracity of each of those facts, or even the biases that are inherent in each of the sources. So even if you're reading an old biography, it's a, if it's a biography about a woman written by a man in the 1700s, well, what did men think of women in the 1700s? What were they trying to say? Um, that sort of thing. I'm curious for you, Jen, when you were doing research on how to dress these women and what they all looked like, what was your research process for that look like? Did it look like? Because I feel like that would be really difficult. Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, I mean, initially, Sorry. no, no, it's okay. I mean, initially, what I did was I just, you know, did like a very simple Google search to yeah. kind of see like, is there a direction that a lot of these images are pointing towards? But um, I also went to the Toronto Reference Library Me because too. they, yeah, yeah. they have such an amazing collection of like old books and you know materials that you can't really access otherwise. Yes. So that was mostly where I went to like reference. What kind of clothing would they be wearing? What would the costume look like? Love that. Yeah. Cool. Was there kind of a singular narrative visually that you were going for with your work in the book? Jen? Um, I mean, I knew that the book was going to be limited palette in terms of the artwork for the interior. Yeah. So I was trying to focus the aesthetic on being like clean lines and then a flat use of color to kind of convey as much information as possible without overloading it with shading or texture or details. And uh, Andy Reid, who was the uh, art director for the book, was really the person who pushed further for that aesthetic as well. So I think she saw my work, saw the, you know, I'm someone who uses a lot of line work in their illustration and decided this would be a good direction for the book to go in. And it'll work really well for, you know, what we want the interiors to look like. I want to talk about some of the particular stories uh, further. One, since we are all Canadian, is uh, the Firth sisters, uh, Shirley and Sharon. Um, And I really appreciate it because it's less about, like, um, physical Olympic accomplishments and just more about uh, personal perseverance, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, including athletes in the book was a big leap for me because I'm not a really big sports fan. I didn't know a lot about it, so it was a challenge. But what I ended up discovering is, you know, much like sports movies are not about sports, really. They're about other things. Um, The sports stories in this book are not really about sports so much as they are about different themes like teamwork and, like you say, personal perseverance. I love the story of Shirley and Sharon first. Two indigenous twin sisters from the Northwest Territories who in the 70s and early 80s um, were the first indigenous women to represent Canada in the Olympics. They competed in four different Olympics in cross-country skiing um, and overcame great hardship. I mean, they were in residential schools, you know, like a pretty intense and challenging experience for the two of them that they continued to deal with um, for their entire lives. Um, Jen, I loved your illustration of them oh, in this one, you. too. Yeah. yeah, so great. I'd actually never heard of them until I 
uh, with the song yeah. to draw them, and then I was doing research on, you know, what their outfits looked like. But then I went and, like, read uh, yeah. a bunch of, you know, articles on their lives, and I was very impressed and kind of embarrassed I'd never known about them until then. I know, that's, like, so many of the women in this book. I'm always like, wow, how did I not know this story? That's pretty wild, but I guess that's what makes books like this so important is sort of reclaiming that history and um, making it more readily available to Yeah, to that's folks. very true. I'm interested in, because as you said, there's a lot of new stories to yourself putting together this book and kind of that process of finding these stories um, and like what you're looking for within that, that preliminary research. Early research, yeah, like Jen says, it often starts with a, a Google or a Wikipedia or something like that. And then from there, it's about, you know, that's like the top line, like, oh, these people existed, mm -hmm. which is a great start. Or, you know, going into larger encyclopedias that list all women in sport ever or, or whatnot. And from there, it's about going beyond that top level into the actual real sources. So I spent also a lot of time at the Toronto Reference Library. Um, I utilize the references of the University of Western Ontario and all of their holdings. Um, I had folks from all over the world help me out with translation because a lot of the materials like on the women from Finland and the Dominican Republic have not really been published in English previously. So I needed some translator help on that. Finnish is an incredibly beautiful but complicated and <laughs> difficult and frankly, I think nonsensical language. So <laughs> that was a challenge. Um, there are some great resources that anybody can go check out, though. One of my favorites to recommend is a website called chroniclingamerica.gov. It's a university project that's digitized and made searchable a bunch of newspapers from American history from, like, the last 300 years. Oh, wow. So if you want to find out what's going on on your birthday in Oregon in, like, 1870, you can go and read the newspaper from that day or you can search your own name for all newspapers. Um, and what I find, you know, the articles are great, but I also, even if you just want to really flip through it, I love the ads because they're all like, cocaine for your baby <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and, like, they're hilarious. So um, I totally recommend people check that out. It's such a fun resource. Were there any stories that you wanted to cover, but you just couldn't find the primary resources to give, like, a thorough, accurate background? Absolutely. That happened so frequently. I would often make a short list of stories that I thought were interesting. And then the ones that ended up making it into the book were really the ones that sources existed for. Because often these women, you know, there's one paragraph about them, and that's tragically kind of all that exists out there about them. Um, so yeah, you have to be kind of, you have to be selective. It felt like the, the Amazonian, uh, Warrior Women is one where you really had to pull together a lot of disparate sources um, to kind of come through with something in the end. Yeah, that's one of those ones where, like, most of the sources we have about these women who are warriors in the, you know, 15th, 16th, 17th century in West Africa, um, most of the sources that we have about them are from white dudes who went there and saw them. So you have to be really cognizant of the fact that what you're reading about them is not really the truth about them. It's all parsed through, like, colonial eyes, right? And I don't know, you know, white people were like, not great, re-Africa, <laughs> really, ever? Yeah. yeah. Um, so Still. You kind of have to, that was a situation where you have to be really careful in 
and there are only like five scholars, I think, in the entire world who study them um, closely. So, yeah, it's it, that one was a tough one. Now, the going back to the athlete squads, the Haneo, um, the divers in Korea, I find really interesting because it's less about the athletics and more about the kind of uh, financial and cultural currency that they hold within their community and how integral they are to the vitality of where they are? Yeah, this, so this is the Henyo who are Korean women, mostly over the age of 50, who are free divers, so they dive without the use of equipment um, off, the island of, off the island of Cheju, um, where some of you may wear face masks from or whatever, like very popular in skincare now. Um, but they are basically responsible for their island's entire economy with what they bring up from their dives. Uh, and they've been doing this for millennia, and they're still doing it. Jen, did you watch any of the videos of them doing their thing? Yeah. It's so great, right? I know, it's amazing. Incredibly impressive what they do and how they've um, kept their economy afloat, but also how it's viewed as, despite the fact that they're the primary breadwinners of their entire, like, island nation, it's viewed as, like, something shameful because it's women's work. Um, so there's a really interesting dichotomy there, mm-hmm. I thought. Um, but, man, they're cool. You can, if you go to Korea now, you can literally go see them and, like, swim with them, too, which is pretty oh, neat. That yeah. is neat. <laughs> right? And there's also something you're mentioning about how um, their kind of physical acumen being so... Um, pronounced as far as like being able to withstand the temperatures and the depths and stuff that's actually being studied um, just as far as those unique set of skills and stuff uh, within the community. Yeah. Scientists are looking at them now to be like, how can they hold their breath for so long? How can they survive in such cold water? Like, they're... I was actually wondering that as well, totally. watching these videos. I'm like, how do they do this? It boggles my mind. Yeah, I would die, like literally die. And many of them do, so, you know. It's tough work. Now, tell me about some of the the groups which kind of play a role as far as, like, uh, historical movements and kind of have an understated role uh, in kind of an overall aspect. Um, I'm thinking specifically the Persian women um, and kind of stuff that they've done that has a, a bigger impact that we're just not necessarily as much acknowledging. Yeah, you, you're bringing up the Patriotic Women's League of Iran from the 1920s, who were kind of a big push in Iran towards um, women's rights and equality at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, that one, they are so interesting because I think, um, again, a lot of the Western world is not super aware of Iran's history with progressivism and westernization and the the cultural divide that that caused and how women's rights had really moved forwards pretty far before moving backwards again. So some super interesting stuff there. I think another one who's, uh, uh, you know, kind of an understated one is the 1964 women's Olympic volleyball team from Japan, Mm -hmm. where you wouldn't really think an Olympic volleyball team would have that much political or cultural impact. But really, Japan at that time, post-war, um, was trying to represent itself on the world stage as a peaceful nation, a technological nation, a progressive nation. And a lot of that fell on the shoulders of this one women's volleyball team in their gold medal match against the Soviets, who had a very fraught history with the Japanese. 
Um, and the world was kind of watching. That one reads like a sports movie. That one reads like yeah. Rudy, I think. Like, it's so fascinating. Um, it's super interesting. Um, tell me a bit more about the Edinburgh Seven, uh, the Doctors, because it's really interesting just how complex um, it's more about kind of what they did after that seems to have the impact than this than yeah. point itself. Yeah, the Edinburgh Seven were... Um, seven women in Scotland in the 19th century who wanted to become doctors, but the only way to become licensed to become a doctor in the UK was to go to university. And of course, women were not allowed in universities, so therefore could not become doctors. So they fought really hard to um, gain admission to those universities to get those credentials. But unfortunately, you know, to your point, they failed. In fact, a lot of the women in the book um, succeed only temporarily and then face major setbacks only to in the end, you know, society comes out better because of their efforts, but there's often a very big backlash against this sort of progressivism for women, and again, we come out ahead in the end, but it can be kind of disheartening in the moment, so those women, same thing, they fought really hard, it didn't work out, they had to go through different means to get their degrees, and finally, 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 the UK capitulated, um, but not until many, many years and many fights later, and they had to go through a lot of, like, really intense hardships to uh to get there they were cool mm-hmm. I, their outfits are cool too and like their whole look and they were so tough like i know yeah it's very impressive the uh that would be such a struggle to go through but yeah there's so few photo documents of these women as well there's like one very grainy photo yeah that i could find really yeah Oh, my gosh. Yeah. There was one, too. There's a Dominican woman in the book, Salome Ureña, mm-hmm. who was the Dominican's first national poet. Not her, not their first not their first female national poet, but their first national poet, period. And a lot, every drawing of her makes her look like a white passing woman. Yeah. The, the drawings are very strange. Yeah. She's, like, presented as white in all of them. But a few years back, someone unearthed, like, the single surviving photo of her, mm-hmm. and she's very clearly African-descended, mm-hmm. um, which is super interesting, but most people still present her. So it was important to me when I sent that to you. I was like, by the way, she's a person of color. Like, <laughs> yeah. please don't draw her as white also. So it's, yeah, finding that stuff is, it can make a big difference to the art, I think. Oh, yeah, completely. Um, was it the pirate friends that there was very little visual representation of them either and it was just like mostly kind of theoretical yeah yeah there were drawings of them basically but no photographs for obvious reasons yeah Yeah. it was mostly just like fantastical drawings of like you know these pirate women like look how amazing they are so it was just kind of like doing research about what the dress would be like and referencing those images in pop culture. Yeah, there's a great history of that that drawing of the two of them, that mm-hmm. it was, like, originally, there's one, there's, like, a, the original source book in which the story about the two of them appears has, like, a drawing of the two of them, and they're in, like, men's blouses and pants yeah. with sashes and stuff. And then, like, the next edition of that book came out, or, like, the Dutch edition, and that edition had, like, the same picture but like altered slightly so now like their boobs are out a little bit the shirts are open now in the second version and like as editions of the book come out with like what's more and more popular with like readers the yeah. drawing of them gets like more and more salacious yeah <laughs> I think that's not good for fighting ridiculous. yeah um 
kind of finishing the book, uh, what were some thoughts uh, as you kind of learned more about these different movements and these different women and kind of a different understanding of of kind of feminism in history? Jen, do you have any thoughts on this? I know for me, so many of these stories I'd never heard of before. So it was so interesting to learn about all these women. And I think a lot of the time when we think about feminism, we think about it in the lens of like, you know, uh, post 20th century feminist movements. Yeah. Uh, like we think of like the suffragettes and the suffragist movement, second wave, third wave feminism. So I think it's really important and interesting to think about how this has been a fight that's been happening for centuries in various parts of the world. And as Sam mentioned, uh, especially with the Patriotic Women's League of Iran, it's so interesting to see how they did fight and they did make so much progress. But then obviously, you know, we know that those rights got pushed back because of war and other political reasons. So I just think it's very important to have like a broader cultural context for these movements and appreciate that it has been a very, very long time that these have been like, it's been very tiny movements towards progress that even allowed women to stand up and say like, I want to be considered a person. I want the right to vote. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear you say that because for me, the takeaway was very similar, which is that like stuff is, this is not, I think we tend to, in the same way that we think about feminism in this, like, second wave, third wave, like, very 20th century mm-hmm. way, I think we also tend to think of, like, f- feminism as, like, a very, like, Western progressivist movement, like, yeah. North America and the UK and stuff. But the truth of the matter is that, like, things have been bad and have gotten better in the same way all over the world, like, all through time, including now, like... You know, the Patriotic Women's League of Iran, that chapter especially for me, it was important Mm. to point out, like, okay, well, these people were using Islam as the excuse for, um, you know, keeping women down. At the same time, Charles Darwin was using science to validate the exact same excuses, reasons to keep women down. You know, the Bible, like, it doesn't matter where in the world it was. It's the same stuff, different day, basically. And we even see it now, like, there's so many political cartoons from the 19th century depicting ugly feminists. And I probably get that tweet, like, six times a day. You know what I mean? So it's like, the more things change, the more things stay the same. But ultimately, the moral of the story is, there is forwards motion, there's backlash, there's forwards motion, there's backlash, but we are moving forwards in the right direction. The, the you know, it's the, a- the vector is, is forwards moving, even if it can feel at some points, like right now maybe, um, like we're moving backwards. Um, mm-hmm. Just know that we are on, we will end up further forwards than we are now. It's just a tough process to get there. It's uh, the perseverance. Um, yeah through expectations and there's also something interesting because a lot of this stuff is definitely there's a class difference as well yep mm-hmm. where it's a lot of working women peasant women or what what have you um where we kind of look at modern feminism through you know the suffragettes a lot of them are pretty well to do um yeah and that's a big difference it's like whose story gets told Definitely. I mean, that's why there's so much information about women like the Edinburgh Seven or the Blue Stockings, who were like a women's literary salon in the UK in the 1700s, because they were like wealthy white women who a lot of people wrote about and who wrote about themselves. But, you know, women in India weren't literate, like black women in the South weren't allowed to be literate. Like who's writing their stories? They weren't, you know, so finding those stories and, and 
republishing them now is challenging, but extremely worthwhile. Like the story of the Eastern Doctors, that seemed quite difficult to really track down much information at all, but there's such an importance there, and there's such a sense of um, selflessness in them, where they do Oh, I, yeah. That story was in Wonder Women, and I loved it so much that I wrote about it again in Girls' Club. <laughs> yeah, it's like three women from India, Japan, and Syria who are the first women in their countries to get a degree in Western medicine, who came to the States to get a degree, all because they found that women in their countries, much like in America and other places, um, would rather die than face the shame of going to a to see a male doctor for their problems. So they knew that their fellow country women were dying and the only way to help them was to become a doctor. And so they sacrificed everything and sailed all the way across the world to a country where they didn't know the language and they were alone and um, to, to study very hard also in a language that is not their native language and, and get these degrees. So um, I can't imagine doing that. I think something we often forget when we're reading history textbooks and it's why Jen's illustrations are so important and why I write very conversationally is we forget that these were just people. Like when I think of historical figures, I think of like dusty black and white, like very serious, like old ladies or whatever. (laughs) But no, they were like 20 year old girls, Mm -hmm. like with facing extreme hardship. who were like, just like us doing these like incredible and impossible things. Yeah. Facing, like, so much more danger doing something that we take for granted today. Totally. Like, the idea of going to another country to study in a language you don't know is already intimidating, but to do it when there are no planes, you go on Um, a boat. Yeah. Yeah, There's danger that you could just, you know, die on the ocean. Yeah. And then once you get there, there's no guarantee that you'll succeed. You'll be able to learn the language. You have no support. Like, it's terrifying. Yeah. And then you're just doing it to help someone else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, thank you both for taking the time to chat with me this afternoon. Uh, reminder, folks, I've been talking to Sam Meggs and Jen Woodall, and the new book is Girl Squads. Um, yeah, thank you both. Thank you. And while the city sleeps, I won't weep because I couldn't
If now 